The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Sendo. For more information, visit villagesendo.org. Welcome to our monthly Fusatsu ceremony. Cezanne, uh, can you hear me out there? Okay, great. Um, so traditionally in Buddhism, this would be called a repentance ceremony, and at Village Zendo, we call it an atonement ceremony, because the fundamental spirit of the ceremony is to recognize our interdependency with all that is. So uh, we say atonement in the literal etymological sense of uh, atoning, at oneing being at one, recognizing that we're not separate from anything or anyone. And um, so uh, we start out the ceremony with the, the verse of atonement. Um, and we, we acknowledge that we are not separate from all evil karma ever committed that we have committed personally and individually, or that we have committed uh, collectively. How are we doing? Okay. So, um, so uh, we, we call all evil karma, whatever actions that have committed harm or committed uh, suffering, caused harm or suffering. And we say that we are, we recognize that um, we are at one with that. We don't try through our spiritual practice to um, escape it or slip out of it somehow or uh, transcend it magically somehow, but to recognize that we are completely interconnected um, and uh, involved in all of that suffering that has ever been committed, past, present, or future. And then having uh, atoned in the first part, the second part of the ceremony is one in which we also recognize that we are not separate from the different manifestations of the enlightened mind that we associate with the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And so we acknowledge all of those different Buddhas and Bodhisattvas as symbolic uh, representations of enlightened mind, which is our own, our own true nature. Uh, we are at one with all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And then having recognized that, the third part of the ceremony that we just did was to recite the four vows uh, of the Bodhisattva, saving all sentient beings. ending all, you know, cutting off all desires and so forth. So to uh, vow to be of service and good benefit in the world. And then the next part of the ceremony is this part in which uh, we have a talk on the Bodhisattva precepts, the ethical guidelines that uh, are a manifestation of our true nature in our existence in the world. 
So I had planned to give a talk tonight, um, uh, like the previous Fusatsu talks I've given. Uh, I've been studying and, and grappling with Dogen's teachings on karma and causality at the end of his life. And I plan to speak with you about that, but um, because of karmic causes and conditions, I decided to switch gears. Um, last week, Daniel Ellsberg died, and I read his obituary. And a couple of days ago, I saw a documentary about Ellsberg. It's called The Most Dangerous Man in America, which is a phrase that Henry Kissinger used to describe Ellsberg. And I recommend the documentary. I think it's quite good. So I thought I'd tell you the story of Daniel Ellsberg as a way to reflect upon the precepts of not lying and not killing. Many of you will know Ellsberg's story, maybe in general outline, but um, he was a very bright young man, um, did very well in school. He was hardworking, ambitious, um, charismatic, and uh, he was sort of the creme de la creme. He went to Harvard, he went to Cambridge, he got an advanced degree uh, at Harvard. But in the mid-1950s, he also uh, joined the Marines, and he uh, ended up being a commander of an infantry unit, and they actually did mobilize in the Middle East during the Suez Crisis, um, although he didn't receive combat action. And uh, that was a very important time for him. He was very identified with the military and believed very strongly in the United States uh, Cold War cause, which, as he put it, was to prevent the spread of Stalinist dictatorship and to um, defend democracy. So uh, he did continue a career as an officer in the military. He went back and studied, um, I believe, military um, strategy. And he ended up taking a, a civilian job at the Rand Corporation. The Rand Corporation was a, a think tank set up by the military uh, because they wanted to get input from civilians, a kind of another line of, of analysis. And also, they set it up on the West Coast so it wasn't just part of the Washington Beltway partisan political scene. So he was a prominent person at the Rand Corporation. And as the United States got deeper into the Vietnam War, he ended up working directly with the Defense Secretary, Robert McNamara. And as the United States was looking for justification to escalate the war, um, McNamara called on Ellsberg to come up with all the information he could find that would justify um, a, a intensification of, of bombing. In Vietnam. So Ellsberg called in all his chips. He spoke to all the military folks he knew in Vietnam, and they were wanting to get some kind of atrocity against uh, US troops that would to justify the case. He couldn't find anything except for one case of two soldiers who'd been uh, captured by the Viet Cong and were mistreated thereafter. 
Well, he wrote that up in dramatic fashion. He gave it to McNamara, who gave it to President Johnson. It was exactly what they wanted. They were very pleased. Um, Ellsberg actually didn't believe in the bombing, but uh, this was used to justify the, the escalation and the bombing campaigns. So uh, as the war went on, um, Ellsberg uh, was observing it and he felt that he, to really understand what was going on, he needed to go to Vietnam um, to talk to people, uh, officers, uh, soldiers on the ground, and to villagers in, in Vietnam. So he went to Saigon and then to the Mekong Delta in 19, around 1966. And uh, he actually did, uh, was involved in uh, combat episodes. And after spending a year and a half there, he drew the conclusion that actually the Viet Cong were very, a very tenacious enemy. And the conditions were such that the United States was never going to be in a position to defeat the Viet Cong or to win the war. So he reported this back to McNamara and McNamara had actually been reaching the same conclusion and welcomed Ellsberg's um, analysis. And he reported on that. And then McNamara turned around and gave a public statement in which he said, we're making significant progress in the war and the end is in sight and we just have to stay the course. This was very upsetting to Ellsberg. Um, the, uh, the deception um, that was being practiced by authorities and by the ongoing toll of the bombing of um, um, Vietnamese, as well as the loss of life of US soldiers. In 1968, the Viet Cong launched the um, Tet Offensive, which caught the US Army off guard. It was a major setback. Uh, for the US, and it really uh, triggered anti-war sentiment in the US and uh, brought down the, the morale for the, for the military cause in the US. So uh, at this point, uh, Ellsberg was, um, was very upset about what was going on, and he was having a harder and harder time sustaining uh, his involvement uh, and, and feeling increasing kind of moral tension or contradiction over the whole thing. He was getting flack from his own wife who had visited him in Vietnam. How can you be a part of this? And uh, so he decided that he needed to, to do something. And the triggering event for him was uh, he was following the anti-war movement and he went to a um, conference uh, that was organized by the, um, uh, the War Resisters League. Uh, and he heard a variety of speakers and one talk really shook him to his core. It was a young man who announced that two of his uh, comrades had just gone to prison. Uh, 
rather than register for the draft or rather than escape from the country. Uh, they'd gone to prison and the speaker said that he too was imminently about to go to prison. And he was looking forward to it because he was going to be with his friends who had stood up for their principles. It was a very moving speech. Uh, the whole crowd was in tears and Ellsberg was in tears. He went off and he found an empty bathroom and basically broke down on the floor of the bathroom. And he sobbed uncontrollably for a long time. And uh, when he had finished, he realized that um, he, he couldn't continue to go on like this. He had to do something to try to end the war even if it meant that he would be sent to prison and might not see his own family. So uh, he decided to uh, make a copy of a very important report that the Rand Corporation had produced and which he had read and which had troubled him deeply. It showed that over the course of the US involvement in Vietnam, every single president had lied to the US public about what was going on. Um, from uh, Truman to Eisenhower to Kennedy to Johnson, um, they were all um, deceiving the public. All along, they had had an agenda which was to block the spread of communism in, in Asia but they uh, were not upfront about what they were doing there. And they often justified US involvement in completely false terms. For example, the Tonkin Gulf incident, which Johnson used to justify the escalation of the bombing was uh, bogus and um, fabricated by US government. So uh, Ellsberg started to copy this document, 7,000 of pages. He would slip out some piece of it every day and then spend all night photocopying it. 7,000 pages, it took him months to do it and he was expecting to be caught at any moment. But he wasn't. And when he finally had a copy, he took it to the uh, head of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, who was Senator Fulbright. He took it to George McGovern, he took it to others, and they did nothing with it. One senator went to McGovern and said, I've received some documents that if the US public found out of them would, would be earth shaking. And Fulbright's response was, I've received them too. And uh, they did nothing. They didn't want to challenge the, the war uh, establishment and the status quo. They didn't be, want to be the ones to speak up. At that point, Ellsberg realized that the only thing he could do was to go to the press. And so he took it to the New York Times, which had to debate whether or not it was uh, in violation of the Espionage Act to publish uh, the material. They decided it was in the public interest. They did. The Nixon White House was uh, furious about this, obtained a legal injunction to prevent any more publications of the documents. 
So Ellsberg took it to the Washington Post and they began publishing it. And then they were blocked by an injunction. So then the papers in Boston, Los Angeles and Philadelphia began publishing. The case went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ended up ruling that um, national security does not always uh, justify censorship and does not always override uh, First Amendment rights to free speech public right to know. And in, the, in this case, the White House had not proven that national security interests were greater than the free speech interests. So um, the White House was so freaked out about the leak and about the damage that was um, being done that Nixon and company set up a dirty tricks team called the plumbers and uh, the first task of the plumbers was to break in and obtain the records of Ellsberg's psychiatrist they didn't want to just defeat Ellsberg in the courts they wanted to destroy his reputation um, but of course they carried out a variety of other uh, tricks including breaking into the democratic um, national headquarters where they were caught and the White House's cover-up campaign was unsuccessful. The press uh, eventually was able to trace the involvement of the highest echelons of the Nixon administration to Nixon himself. The Nixon administration uh, fell as a result, and nine months later, the war in Vietnam was over. So if you think about karma and causality here, Ellsberg's blowing of the whistle brought about a major Supreme Court decision which uh, has resonated down to the present about First Amendment rights. It brought down the Nixon administration, um, and helped bring it down, and helped bring an end to the Vietnam War. Ellsberg's trial um, is interesting too. His lawyer, uh, major civil rights lawyer named Leonard Wineglass talked to a psychiatrist to find out about who they should or shouldn't get on the jury. And the psychiatrist said, whatever you do, don't get middle-aged men on the jury. Why? Because they won't just uh, not sympathize with Elberg, Ellsberg, they will actively despise him. Why? Because Many of them very probably would have sacrificed their own principles in order to protect themselves, to get where they're at, to, uh, to preserve their personal self-interests. And that will, be, uh, that will be too much for them to swallow. The case of a man who uh, gave up his own uh, personal security, put that at risk in order to stand up for his principles. But uh, ultimately, because of government misconduct in the case, the uh, judge threw out the, the case against Ellsberg and he was freed. He had been facing 115 years in prison for his actions. So, um, I think there are a couple of, of things about this that stand out for me. Um, 
One is that in retrospect, we can think about Ellsberg as a hero, someone who stood up for principle, did the right thing, and uh, brought a great deal of benefit to, to others. But we also have to recognize that Ellsberg did a great deal of harm, and he was the first to acknowledge that, that he had been complicit in the, um, the war effort, in the cover-ups, um, in the silencing of the true actions of the government, and in the killing of millions of people in, in Asia and hundreds of thousands of United States uh, citizens who had gone to fight in the war. But he was the first to admit his, uh, his own wrongdoing. And secondly, uh, he repented in a very uh, intense way, in a very deep way. And that repentance led him to make a major sacrifice and to really put himself on the line. What does all this have to do with us? Um, in some ways, we're very different from Daniel Ellsberg. He was someone who uh, was in a very influential position, both to do harm and to do good. And he did both. Most of us are not in that kind of position. And also his repentance was very, uh, it was a very profound and intense experience for him. Born of his moral crisis. And our own moral dilemmas and contradictions and crises and our own repentance may uh, not look so dramatic as those of Daniel Ellsberg. But nonetheless, I think that we do share things in common with him. First of all, each and every one of us, in one way or another, um, is complicit uh, with lying. We, uh, we may lie and openly, overtly, or we may lie in more subtle ways, or we may keep silence, or we may cover up the truth. And I think one of the lessons of Ellsberg's is that keeping quiet, not blowing the whistle, covering up is also uh, a form of lying. And each and every one of us does this in some way, either egregiously or very, in very subtle ways. And it's up to each one of us to think about how we do that, to reflect on how we do that, even in the most subtle ways. And secondly, each and every one of us, in one way or another, is complicit in killing. It may not mean that we have taken someone's life in a literal sense, but we may be complicit in the taking of life in a collective sense, in terms of our nation or our communities or our families, or in a more subtle sense or in even a metaphorical sense, we, we have all taken life. 
And this can happen in many ways. It can happen through what we do, what we say, what we think, how we are complicit in violence, or just complicit in um, denying someone, or disavowing someone, or rejecting someone, or ignoring someone, even someone we see on the street. That too, in a way, can be a kind of killing. Killing can take many different forms, and it's up to each one of us to look at how we do that in our lives. Sometimes we say not killing, and it might sound very, if we think about it too literally, uh, like something, oh, it's not so applicable to me. But uh, we should see it very intimately, too. So uh, Suzuki Roshi once said that uh, not killing is a dead precept. An actual working precept is, excuse me, Perhaps just to say, I'm sorry, can be a way of repenting and realigning with the precept of not lying or not killing. So this Fusatsu uh, ceremony of atonement is one in which we repent. We don't do it in intellectually, philosophically. We don't do a moral calculus of our rights and wrongs. All we have to do is put aside for a moment our thoughts and our judgments and open ourselves up, heart and mind, to what is actually happening right now. Give ourselves completely to kneeling, to bowing, to chanting. And if we do that, even for a moment, we are at one and we can live the precept of not lying and not killing. And this is true in every aspect of our practice in our lives, in Zazen, in our daily activities, setting aside thoughts and judgments for a moment, opening ourselves up again, can give us a kind of space and a kind of liberty to be able to respond more skillfully to the best of our ability to give uh, an honest, to make an honest effort, not to be trapped in self-centered views, and to try to be of service. I'll leave you with a line uh, from Thoreau that was important to Daniel Ellsberg. Thoreau said, Cast your whole vote, not a slip of paper merely, but your whole influence. Thank you.